This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. If we acknowledge these basic facts, then we are ready to meet AIM, a group that is working tirelessly on testing, proving, and unlocking an imagination curriculum for every school in the world, a group that is developing a comprehensive set of training tools for educators worldwide, including around AIM's core 21 values, to help these educators and teachers evolve into mentors and guides. Welcome to AIM, a group that is looking to transform education from the inside out in order to create more opportunities, more equal opportunities, more educational parity, and in turn, a fairer world, using imagination and mentoring as the tools of our change. This is Josh Rapoon, and you're listening to the What School Could Be podcast. Before we start the show, please consider joining the rapidly growing What School Could Be global online community. Simply install the What School Could Be app on your smart device or go to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org. I look forward to seeing you there. My guest today is Parul Punjabi Jagdish, who came onto my radar screen because of a talk he gave in Las Vegas attended by one of my previous guests, Robert Landau. Robert was so taken by Perul's talk that he contacted me with his recommendation. Currently, Perul is the CEO of AIM Mentoring, a global movement founded in Australia. Perul's resume is long and deep. Previously, he was head of education, partnerships, and philosophy, and a mentor at AIM. Prior to that, He held non-executive leadership and governance roles at Amnesty International Coffs Harbor, the Future Directors Institute, and Hey Neighbor, meaning he was involved in the global fight against injustice, turning board directors into future directors, and the global fight for a green future, among other passions. Purul writes, inspired by Mandela, Gandhi, and Malala, my mission in life is to trust life fully, live fearlessly, and serve all beings around me, human and non-human. Having grown up in India with the very real potential of ending up on the streets, I've instead been blessed with a full life filled with adventure and wonder. So what is AIM mentoring? In 2004, AIM founder Jack Bancroft sketched an idea of a social network for good, one that connected university students as mentors with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander high school students in Australia, building bridges between two different groups to lead to educational equity, exchanges of worth and value, and for the mentors, a deeper connection to a lived experience. In 2005, it commenced and scaled at pace around Australia, engaging over 25,000 Indigenous high school students who closed a 40% education outcome gap and lit up the minds of a generation of university students desperate to connect to something bigger than themselves. Since its founding, AIM has engaged tens of thousands of students and thousands of mentors in Australia, Africa, and the United States helping to solve one of the world's most complex social challenges, indigenous inequality. What inspires AIM are the mentors throughout human history 
the philosophers, artists, inventors, and designers who have moved humanity forward in positive ways. With the force of imagination, mentoring, and unlikely alliances between those with power and those without, AIM is creating a fairer world. And now, here's my conversation with the CEO of AIM Mentoring, Parul Punjabi Jagdish. Parul, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. Thank you, Josh. Really excited and very present here with you. That's awesome. So, Parul, in an AIM TV episode, the Australian singer-songwriter Ben Lee talks about being born with a happy disposition, which he chose to cultivate over the course of his life. So what disposition were you born with and what dispositions have you cultivated like sturdy trees in a forest over the course of your life so far? Mm. Yeah, that's a brilliant question. And I'm going to go even farther back, if I may, Josh, Mm -hmm. and sort of like, as we love to start all conversations, whether it's a podcast, whether it's a meeting, whether it's a coming together of minds, is by acknowledging the lands we're gathered on. And it's not necessarily an acknowledgement. It's an invocation of intelligence Mm. of all the many people that have lived on this land, that have nurtured this land, looked after the airways, the waterways. And and so we pay our respects, immense respects to all the elders of all indigenous peoples around the world, all First Nations peoples. And pretty much if we go far back, way far back into the history of all life, we'll see that we're essentially paying respects to everyone's ancestors everywhere. Because mm. if you go back, way, 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 way back, there was some form of creation event or some form of creation that occurred. And all of us find ourselves here. So it's important to acknowledge. And I'm dialing in currently from Manhattan. And this is the land of the Lenape people. And mm. I was recently told by a Lenape elder that Manhattan used to be called Manhattan and Central Park, surprisingly enough, has one of the greatest diversity of bird species anywhere in America. And it's always been a historical side of importance. And most Americans don't even know that. So, yeah, I feel kind of lucky to have just been here three months and know a little bit more. But I'm still new to the land. I'm treading lightly. Mm. Mm -hmm. So we start there and then I'll answer your question. What kind of disposition I was born with and yes. what did I cultivate? That's a great question and mm-hmm. such a good way to start. Like I love that song with Ben Lee in it. So I'd say I was born with kind of a happy disposition, but it was more like an inquisitive disposition. I was really curious about life from a young age. My mom would tell you if you asked her, like I used to ask her questions like, hey, how come we have a roof over our heads, even if it's a small, tiny roof and those kids don't? Or how come I get to go to school and those kids don't? Because in India, you see it a lot. Like, it's pretty much a roll of dice. You could be born on the streets and your whole life could be different. So, like, I was born with a very grateful disposition. I understood that life is much Mm -hmm. bigger than I think what it is. And over time, through different experiences, those sort of things came more to the fore. And the other thing I'll note is like I was born with a very spiritual outlook in my life. Mm. Thankfully, that's part of who I am. And that's what spirituality means for me. And yeah, we can go deeper or not, is the essence that we're all connected, not at some shallow ideological level, but deeply experientially, we are all part of the one life, the one existence. And that's what we acknowledged or sort of invoked up the top. Mm. 
You know, I think that I was possibly born with a sunny disposition like Ben Lee, but I think my father <laughs> was not. And he was deeply influential in my life. And so I was challenged by his negative outlook on human beings and on life in general. But over the course of the last maybe 10 years, I have found ways to cultivate what I think is that innate sunny disposition. And I, I talk a lot about walking on the sunny side of the street, you know, and that uh, sometimes it can be a challenge to, to stay on that sunny side of the street, given, you know, the headlines of the day and all of that. But I like the mm. idea that dispositions are not fixed, that they're something mm. that can actually, they're, they're fluid, they can change, they can be nurtured and nourished over the course of a life. And I think that's an awesome thought, you know, that you have some, some agency, if you will, in the disposition that you carry around each day. I think that's a really, really awesome thought. And that has been the essence of the work we've been doing at AIM. Mm -hmm. At the moment, I'm wearing a shirt, which has one of our professors who also happens to be a puppet, Professor Hope. Mm. And at the back of the shirt, it says, hope doesn't come easy. Mm. It sometimes is a struggle to keep hope alive, especially yeah. when times are so dark and all the news that hits us. And you have to really, really nurture that disposition. And some of us are lucky. We have or we get to create conditions in our lives that that disposition can be nurtured and can be put yeah. to good use. And yeah, you shared with me a beautiful little podcast the other day, which I happened to listen to from Pedro Marie Brown. And then I was also watching a movie recently called Home. And we don't have an option to be pessimistic at this stage. Yeah. Yeah. And we will come back to Professor Hope at the very end of this conversation, because I've got one queued <laughs> up for that. you about Professor Hope. So, Peru, before we get into AIM mentoring, which will be kind of in the second section of this conversation, I want our listeners, you know, to continue to get to know you a bit more. So I spotted a line in your lengthy resume related to equity work that you did within the European Union. So what was that work you and others did to make the European Union more equitable and more broadly? What is it in your Jagdish DNA that makes you so passionate about equity in all of its complex forms? Mm. Yeah, I suppose I'll sort of answer the question backwards and go with the DNA question first. And that sort of comes back to where I was born, which is in the south of India, mm. which is traditional in certain ways, but also hits you in the face with like glaring inequity. And although there is a spiritual undercurrent or a thread that somehow brings it all together, it also makes it more stark and more remarkable. And like I said, I used to ask my mom these questions even at a young age. And I was like, huh, really, life could have played a trick on me. And then what chance did I have at anything? So mm -hmm. there was always that gratitude for what I had received. And there was naturally not an obligation, but a desire to share. It's almost like when a flower is in bloom, it gives out fragrance. So for me, like the work I've done with equity, it was like the fragrance that emanates out of a flower naturally. Mm. It was not something I consciously chose to do. It was something really inbuilt in the DNA. So I love the way you framed the question. Mm. And yeah, when I moved to Italy, and that was quite a transformational period in my life, because for better or for worse, like as much as my life was spiritual when I grew up, there was also this idea that you had to succeed materially. And that was like the Western worldview dominating India, which is happening around the world everywhere. Like the American worldview is predominantly taking over every culture at some stage or another. And we have to be really watchful of that and be mindful of how we sort of engage with that or not. But yeah, I bought into that culture when I was younger and I thought success meant 
having a car or having a house or having a career or having a wife or whatever else you thought yeah. as a young person. And then I got lured into the trap and I started working initially in the corporate setting, which did not bring me joy, which did not fulfill me. Don't get me wrong. I learned heaps. I connected with amazing people and all of them are still part of the work we do and still part of the network. Mm. But I knew my calling was elsewhere. And thankfully, life guided me on to Italy and I met this amazing group. I studied international relations there. So it was natural for me to look at like how different countries are doing economically because that was my undergrad and then how different regions and this group that I work with called T33, we used to work with the European Commission, European Parliament, Committee of the Regions, all sort of like European government levels, but also the government in Italy, the regional government in Marche, where we were based. And the questions we asked predominantly was like, how do we move money, resources, knowledge, information mm. from perhaps the more affluent north of Europe to mm. the south? and from the more affluent West to the East, so that EU as a whole becomes more equitable. Mm. And there was lots of regional development, social policy that sort of tied into that work. Mm. Wow, that's so interesting. And I can imagine, I mean, if, if you're living in Italy at the time, right, while you're beginning this work, but still it must have afforded you an opportunity to travel within the European Union. Is that, am I, is that correct? Totally, totally. I saw so much more of Europe. And it's funny how that even happened, because... When I was in Italy and when I met these people, like I was actually really into cinema, which came later on in my life. But mm. I had to do an internship as part of my studies. And I met this company, which is like seven Italians and one French person. And like it was really small. Now it's a big organization. And I was one of the first probably interns in the company. And I was probably the most different looking or different sounding or different thinking person that they had hired, which is fun. And they really wanted me to stay on after the internship. And I was like, you know what? I actually want to just travel Europe at this point. I don't want to necessarily commit myself to work. Like I've done that for the last couple of years. At the moment, I want to wander. I want to explore. And they were like, we'll make you explore. We'll get you traveling every day. Like, okay. <laughs> and I want to make movies. And they're like, Sure, we want people to film the work we're doing and document it. Would you be up for that? Oh, my. Like, okay. <laughs> All right. So they basically said yes to everything I have planned. And I was like, okay, guys, I love you. Let's just do this. That's awesome. Awesome story. So kind of along the same lines and continuing, I think, along the chronology of your life, you served on an advisory board for the Future Directors Institute in Australia. And I, I watched a short promo video at the FDI website. And the Institute's founder, Perul, talks about board directors who are curious, courageous, and conscious. So what does that mean to be a future director? And what happens when directors cultivate their curiousness, their courageousness, their consciousness? And and sorry, multi-book question, what are the implications for the greater conversation out there in both business and education about being you know, hashtag future ready or about who is shaping the future of our world? Yeah, that's a brilliant question. And yeah, perhaps Paul Smith, who is the founder, should answer this question, but I'll do my best, Paul, mm. if you're listening in and say, <laughs> yeah, the idea of directors or humans in general, and especially directors, it's funny because we have two boards within AIM because we're two sort of sister entities, one which is globally headquartered in Australia, the other ones are American ent entity, which is a 501c3 incorporated here. Mm. And we have two separate boards that we work with. And for better or for worse, like board is a management structure that is supposed to be a balance and check. 
And I'm all for like balances and checks and keeping people accountable for the words they say and the actions they commit to. But then the energy that often comes into boards tends to be oppositional, mm. tends to be combative. And that's not the way to imagine the future or build it together. Because mm. if you look at Mandela, who's one of my biggest influences in life, if you look at Gandhi, who's another big influence in my life, what you sort of see is people saying, hey, although we have faced oppression, although we have faced all these other things which are not healthy, if we repeat the same thing in word or deed, we're going to end up in real places. It's going to split us even more. And that's not being future ready. That's not taking everyone along the journey. Mm. And we have to find a way of finding forgiveness. So that includes being courageous. And conscious for me is like having everyone included in the journey, acknowledging that you're part of like one essential life that is flowing through all of us, even in rocks, even in trees, even in animals and insects and planets and stars and galaxies. And so those for me are the underlying principles of what I see a future director or a future person, which I hope is more our present than the future. Mm. But but simply the idea of leaning into the future mm. is just really being radically open, being honest to things you do not know, to put your hand up sometimes and say, hey, I don't know the answer to that. Like, mm. that's wonderful. That's the beginning of a remarkable journey. And I was having a conversation with one of our board directors yesterday, a really, really thoughtful, very bright, very intelligent person. And then he was telling me, look, I love the work you're doing here. And this is us talking about potentially a death date for the AIM to end in 10 years. I don't know if we'll touch on that at some point, but we will. Yeah, it's a big conversation. Okay. And he sort of says, look, I get the idea, but you have to convince me about this, 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 and this. Mm. And I actually, I, I agreed with all of the above and we had the best conversation for an hour. Both of us gained immense insights. And at the end, I sort of said, hey, I totally hear you. Like, and I agree with you. So what you're telling me is perfect. And it's a matter of framing, essentially. It's saying, yes, as the director, I could say, I agree with you. And can I offer a bill? Instead of it being, I agree, but have you thought of this, this, this? Like, it mm. just comes across as a different energy. Yeah. When you're building on an idea saying, I love that idea, which is what the other person said to me. I love that idea, but I'm still going to tear it apart. Mm. And what he was doing was not tearing it apart. It's just a language we've inherited. He was essentially trying to build the idea to make it more robust. I'm like, you're actually doing yes and. So let's consider that as a framework to work with. And he's like, huh, that's good. I'll take it. Mm. Wow, that's so cool. You know, yesterday I was having a conversation with a colleague here where I'm based in Hawaii, and he started a charter school called Dreamhouse Academy. And the oh, twin yeah. visions of Dreamhouse are identity and leadership. It's a public charter school. And what he's attempting to do is exactly what you're just describing here and really what Future Directors Institute is all about. He's attempting to help young kids develop courageousness and consciousness and curiousness and to be able to do those kinds of yes and conversations, right? And I think that that's really neat, you know, that I can imagine that the kids in in their futures as they come through his school are going to have the kinds of conversations that you just described here, which I think is really, really, really neat. Dream House is a dream, hey? I love the idea of the school coming together because I spoke to their founder as well. Mm. And it's really, really a beautiful idea. So Yeah, absolutely. Look forward to the work they do. Yes. And when one day when we get you here to Hawaii, 
well, actually, you've already been here to Hawaii, but we definitely want to be able to sit down with Alex Tease, who was a former guest on this podcast, and talk Wonderful. a little bit more. Yeah. So, Pearl, you recommended a book to me titled Sand Talk by Tyson Yunkaporta, hmm. which I finished last night. I'm very excited to share that with you. And one reviewer wrote, quote, This book shows how vital and alive and essential indigenous ways of being and thinking are, unquote. So do you agree? Like, how alive is indigenous thinking and ways of being in the world? What, what does this aliveness mean to our mostly educator listeners of this podcast? Yeah, I think the indigenous ways of knowing, being, living are all very much alive. But then the, the challenge and what I think Tyson's book tries to highlight and tries to dismantle at some level is that it's still in isolated pockets. It's still in, oh, if you want to like access indigenous ways of knowing, you have to go into this particular indigenous community. And that's an important part of the journey for someone trying to get into that world if you're not born into that world. I'm fortunate enough to be born into that world back home in India with the Gondi people. But yeah, it again sort of tends to be insular. And the way, and I think Tyson really calls it out beautifully in his book, is the way we've tried to sort of put it onto systems is like, oh, here's a system already designed and we're just going to plug indigenous ways of knowing at some point. We're going to put like a diversity office within our organization that looks at people who are a bit different and provide opportunities for them. And that's such a wrong way of doing it because you create a dead system that is not alive, that is not open to other influences from outside. Mm. Versus if you put indigenous systems at the beginning and sort of say, hey, here's a live system, and through that lens, you look at the world, then everything becomes more fascinating. Then your whole organizational design becomes more intelligent, more alive, more in sync with nature, more mimicking the cycles of life, growth, and then at some point deterioration and death instead of this idea of constant growth. This idea that our GDPs have to improve year on year or our school retention rates have to keep going higher and the school profit and loss balance sheet should always have more money compared to the previous year, always have more kids. Like we've just been given this idea of more is more and it's not actually true. And so that's how do we bring that knowledge back into our lives? How do we bring that? And that requires active amount of work. You cannot just sort of sit in the back seat and say, I don't know how to access this and I'm just going to let it go because mm. it's so critical at a time like today where yeah, we're on the brink of a couple of catastrophes and whether it's in the education system or systems at large, because one of the things we're trying to sort of move here in New York, although it's not directly our mandate, but it sort of filters through everything we do. Like the moment you and I get on this podcast or the moment you go down to a store and get a can of soda or whatever you do, like you're engaging in economics, you're engaging in the financial world mm. at some level or another. And so we're trying to sort of bring indigenous thinking to the core of financial systems design. And the group we're working with here, the office I'm actually calling from right now is called Ethic. And you can check them out at ethic.com. They're a wonderful bunch of people. Mm. And they're trying to sort of make finance more sustainable. And now they're saying we want indigenous ways of knowing to infiltrate the financial system from beginning to end and mm. not it being an afterthought. Mm. 
I think that's that we haven't quite gotten to Professor Hope. We will at the very end, but you you have spoken as if you were Professor Hope in this moment <laughs> and and given me a sense of hope. I, I was very inspired by the read, and I thank you for the recommendation, Pearl. Once you crack open the cover and begin, it's very difficult to put down. I know that sounds cliche, mm. but you really sort of drop mm. into something that's so completely different. And especially, you know, I mean, I live here in an urban environment, and it's a remarkable thing. And I think that it's going to take me a very long time to process it, to mm-hmm. process a lot of the thoughts. But already there are ideas that are coming out of it in terms of the work mm-hmm. that I do in education. And so it's very exciting. And I appreciate your recommendation on that. And there will be, I'll come back to it a little bit later in this conversation. I'm glad you loved it. Yeah. So I want to finish this first section, Perul, where we're getting to know you and your life by reading a quote from the actor Denzel Washington, who said, quote, show me a successful individual and I'll show you someone who had real positive influences in his or her life. I don't care what you do for a living. If you do it well, I'm sure there was someone cheering you on or showing you the way, a mentor, unquote. So who were the people in your early life who showed you the way, who helped you to see the choices you could make and how you might walk the road less traveled? Yeah, it has to go to, at the start, my mom, that role. And I'd say all of us have been mentors in our life. Like that's, Mm. if you go way, way back, that's how we've passed knowledge on from one generation to another. It's how life has existed from the origins and we're trying to forget it, but we can't really forget it because it's in our DNA so deeply entrenched. So mentoring is in a way the essence of life. It's how we exist in the world and we do it all the time. We exchange knowledge, we pass on the baton at some point. And so, yeah, like with my mom, she's a fierce woman. She made sure, because I had my dad pass away when I was 10, which obviously was a big shock for the entire family. And we were on the brink of like being actually on the streets which is my question to my mom before so all of those things and mom like made sure her boys went to school and we still had a shot at education and a shot at life which obviously changed the trajectory of our lives but also she made sure that I was exploring what I wanted to explore I remember and even when I was telling you when I left my early corporate career with Bain and moved to Italy, like my mom asked me the question saying, are you sure you want to do this? Because you have worked really hard in some ways. Like I didn't think I was working really hard, but somehow you worked all your life to get this job or to get here. And now you say it doesn't actually work for you. And I was like, I think that's a wise realization for me to say it doesn't work for me. And I asked my mom, would you rather have me be successful in the normal sense of the word or would you rather have me be happy? And she's like, Of course, if you put it like that, I want you to be happy. (laughs) Do whatever you want to do. I'm happy in your happiness. And thereafter began my exploration journey. So mom has to be number one. And then a couple of others that I've already mentioned, like books were a big part of my growing up. I read voraciously and Mandela was a leading light in my life. The way he lived his life, the way he forgave the oppressor was really important when he wore the Springbok jersey in Ellis Park that sent a signal saying, hey, I see you as the other side and I embrace you and there's no difference here, which is such a powerful statement, which is why there's hoodies in our world in some weird way. It comes back to that Springbok jersey moment. Mm. And then like perhaps it's Gandhi as well as someone. And more recently, it's Malala as someone else I look up to in the education space as well. 
but just all these people who had a different way of looking at life and were firm in their beliefs and sort of lived their lives through that framework that unified rather than divided. Mm. You know, I wonder if you can speak a little bit to Santok coming back to Tyson's book. And I think one of the revelations for me, Pearl, was that, you know, when you think about mentoring, you think about, well, there's this formal kind of thing where two people sit down in chairs opposite each other and they have this kind of formal conversation. But what Santok describes is the immense passing on of knowledge through networks, through the people that you interact with in your life. And these are almost like neural networks. And it sounds like what you're describing is really what Tyson was describing in Santok, that we can open our minds up in terms of mentoring to every possibility of a bit of knowledge that's passed on or a skill that's developed or something is really all part of the mentoring process. It's part of life. I wonder what you think about that. I think that's spot on, Josh. That's a really good summary of the way I look at mentoring. And even the way we do mentoring at AIM, it's not one-on-one people sitting next to each other. There's some aspects, some programs within AIM that allow for that to occur. Mm. But a lot of our work is in group settings. A lot of our work is circular, sitting in a yarning circle or in a certain way. And like there's no hierarchy. In fact, if anything, the mentor's role is to be curious is to be courageous is to be conscious is to ask questions is to listen is to like facilitate a conversation or a flow which is kind of what you're doing right now right and this is how we unlock knowledge that exists within other people that exists within nature mycelium is a beautiful beautiful it's it is a neural network under the ground that sort of connects trees and i think that's playing a mentoring role under the ground subterraneanly it's doing a huge knowledge transference between trees and the underworld and amongst trees and it is the wood wide web they call it and we have this amazing neural network in our brain and i was listening to the podcast with adrian marie brown yesterday that you sent to me and it was beautiful to sort of think of oh fractals yeah what happens at the (laughs) microcosmic level right what happens under the ground happens also in our brains happens also in spiral galaxies around the world and heads of broccoli and you're like yeah (laughs) That's life. That's how mentoring happens. Yeah. Yeah. We, we both apparently share a love of the On Being podcast. And I recall maybe four years ago, I heard an episode. I don't remember the individual, but he was an expert in the ways of these neural networks that exist underground between trees. Mm. And oh my God, it blew my mind. <laughs> you know, it was just like, <laughs> wait, these trees are talking to each other. This is not Lord of the Rings. You know, this is actually, you know, actually happening. So I think that that's, that's awesome. Probably read three books on mycelium and mushrooms. So yeah, yeah. I admire yep. the work they do. Yep, absolutely. So, hey everyone, stay with us. We'll be back in a minute with more questions for Parul Jagdish. Hey there, are you interested in hearing weekly conversations with authors, leaders, and practitioners at the forefront of learning and education innovation? Then you'll love the Getting Smart podcast. This podcast amplifies the incredible work being done by some of the most innovative minds in education. Learn new leadership styles, new technologies, new frameworks and mindsets, and get the fuel you need to stay motivated and curious. Together, we can empower all learners to thrive. It's available at gettingsmart.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi friends, this is Toy Hirschman from Entre Ed. It is my great honor to uplift this excellent podcast, What School Could Be. 
as always, we are super excited to support innovation in education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of the incredible What School Could Be educators on our podcast. If you are looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators and other great minds from across the world, check out the EntreEd Talk podcast and please like and subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for tuning in. Hey everyone, we are back with Parul Punjabi Jagdish, the CEO of AIM Mentoring, founded in Australia, but now very much a global movement. So listeners, to learn more about what AIM Mentoring is and how it got started, go to its website at aimmentoring.com WP1 or simply search AIM Mentoring. So Pruel, as, as I've already shared with you, I just consider this such a, an honor and it's such a priceless opportunity to talk to you. So here are a few questions inspired by what I think might be ideas deeply embedded in the DNA of the AIM organization and the AIM movement. So I don't want to get goofy or weird here, but let's imagine <laughs> a, not, a not so hypothetical hypothetical. So you're addressing... 300 young kids sitting in the back of a university lecture hall. And these mostly young people are possibly feeling frustrated or locked down or possibly angry or like they don't belong. But for sure, they're hungry for change, hungry to be agents of change, hungry to make a difference in the world. And in that moment, you're the first step to something different. So how do you start your talk? How does And how does that talk lead to the mentoring that we were just talking about? Yeah, that's a beautiful question. So I might take you in the room with me okay. if you're willing to go on this hypothetical, I'm not ready. so hypothetical journey. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And you have to understand that by the time these kids rock up into a university campus auditorium and there's 300 kids in the room, they've already gone on experiences with us there is some level of trust we're beginning to unlock. It might be very nascent. They might still be like, who's this guy? Why is he here? Or who's this person? Why are they here? Why should they be talking to me now? Why should they even care? Or, so there's all these questions going on potentially in the young person's mind. Mm. But we've gone to their schools. We've hung out with them once a week. And by the time we bring them out to university campus, and one of the things I'll note, it does not rely on me speaking more often than not, it's a curriculum that guides what happens and it's a screen potentially that comes in and sometimes my role is merely to facilitate and press play or because it takes the pressure off the individual and we like to make individuals heroes, but we have to always remember that movements are collective work and we always rely on collective intelligence. Mm. So as soon as the kids arrive in their school bus from all the schools nearby this university campus, it could be 10 schools, 20 schools, 5 schools, and for the first time, they're all in different age groups, year seven to year 12, like which in Australia is all the high school years. In America, it'd be middle school and high school, so year six to year 12. And they sort of all come together and they're like, oh, all these different age group people, predominantly kids who have identified themselves as outside the margins in whatever way, shape or form. Indigenous Australians we know, indigenous sort of people in Hawaii or here or elsewhere mm -hmm. automatically fall into that category, but also like African-Americans, also Latin Americans. And, and for us, it's a moment of strength when you know you've been pushed outside the margins because then you get a unique worldview into the world, mm -hmm. which you would perhaps not get if you are within the margins and if you're within the mainstream system plugged in. 
So we don't go in and say, hey, we're here to help you. We don't go in with that sorry mindset. Like, Actually, you're the leaders because you have a remarkable worldview. You haven't perhaps fully unlocked it yet. And our job is to sit with you and help you unlock that full potential and then see where it leads us because you're the future. You're going to lead us. So people really, young people, kids really respond to that kind of vision, high expectations that we set on them, which a lot of educators, unfortunately, sort of tend to miss out on, especially if you come from a different background, then the expectations are low and then it creates a a self-fulfilling prophetic cycle. But anyhow, let's go into this vision. Kids are arriving on the school bus and as they get down, there's a series of mentors like giving them high fives, cheering them on, welcoming them in really warmly. And they're like, what's going on? Like, why mm. am I feeling so uplifted the moment I get out of the bus? As we know, the show starts on the sidewalk. That's a Broadway saying, but we've borrowed that as well. And then we roll out the purple carpet and it's already done the day before. The carpet's ready. There's different stations for the kids to walk through before they enter into the auditorium. So they, the first station they walk through potentially is like a 365-day goal-setting station. And they have to say, oh, this is my goal for the next 365 days. And and that's wonderful. And before they start formulating, and it can be something really small. This is what I want to achieve in the next year. But it could be something really big. And it's totally up to the young person. We just facilitate. And then they slam it on like a post-it board somewhere and they sort of say it out loud mm. and then they move to the next station when they, where there are reams of paper available and this is recycled paper so they just turn it into a paper plane put what is one thing they're going to sacrifice in order to achieve the goal that they've just called out and it could be 30 minutes of my video game time it could be like eating more healthily or like i'm going to reduce my fast food intake to twice a week or whatever they're willing to sacrifice they put it on the paper and then they throw the paper plane. And that's a sort of like a physical release of something that has been holding them back. Wow. And then they move to the next station and then there's someone clicking their photos or getting them to record videos and say like, how's it feeling being here? And they suddenly feel like it's almost like a paparazzi moment for them. And they're like, oh, these are kids who perhaps society doesn't fully see or fully acknowledge. Hmm. And suddenly they start asking themselves, why am I so special? What's going on here? This is kind of weird. And that's what we play on. It's the fantastic element. And then as they walk to the final little entry point, there's a magician or a wizard at the door doing tricks and asking them, what's the secret password? What's the secret password? <laughs> and the secret password is, there is no shame at aim. Oh. And when you say no shame at aim, you can enter the doorway. And as you enter, there's like, the lights are really dim. Perhaps there's like strobing lights, which we warned the kids about before. There's the whole auditorium is decked out with, paintings that represent their culture or something significant to them. And there's a DJ playing music. Perhaps there's puppets on the screen, including Professor Hope. And they just enter this world of imagination and we get them to forget for that particular day who they think they are. Mm. And in that moment, just through that day of experience, a lot of things unlock. So you understand what I say at that moment is almost immaterial. Yeah. They've already walked through this huge journey Mm. And a lot of transformation has occurred. And then we are also very theatrical. The first words we say are really important. So we hold silence until we're ready to speak. And we don't use the first word like lightly. We start with somewhere strong. And more often than not, it's a, a return to the country we're on. It's an invocation of intelligence. And from there, the journey unfolds for the day. Mm. And so two follow-up questions about this, and which is your marvelous explanation or description, which, you know, had me 
I'm ready to walk through that door and say there's no shame in him <laughs> right now. But so the, the first question has to do with anybody doing any kind of preparation or wanting to know more about AIM is going to discover very quickly that it's a movement rich in the area of video and audio storytelling. And in one of these videos, which our listeners can find at your AIM YouTube channel, the idea is presented that the AIM story begins not in 2005, but or not in that particular moment, but 60,000 years ago. So what was that beginning 60,000 years ago? And why is it important that these young people know this? And even the people that you're explaining AIM to in other audiences, what is the emotion that happens in that moment when you discover, oh, this isn't something that happened yesterday. This happened or began 60,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. This is such a beautiful question. It's perhaps my favorite question so far, Josh. Because <laughs> it goes into deep time. Yeah. It looks at time not as this little linear thing that we like it to be, to sort of organize our lives around. And that's a useful tool because we have a meeting at this particular time or we have a train to catch. But really, time is not so simple. Time is really, really deep and complex and and for us, 60,000 years was a, a device, a framework, and we referred specifically when that video was made to what most people agree as the start of indigenous cultures in Australia. And indigenous Australian people are considered to be the longest living continuous culture on the planet. And it's quite a remarkable story. And when we did that video, it was specifically designed for kids in Australia, although now the video has expanded and it sort of speaks to a more global audience. Mm. But the idea was all these young people who were indigenous, which is what AIM started working with, were being told, hey, you're not going to amount to much. And even if you succeed, you're probably going to be an artist or an athlete at best. Those Mm. are your two boxes that you kind of fit into. But you can't consider yourself the first Aboriginal prime minister or the first Torres Strait Islander neuroscientist, a physician. Like there were there were limits explicitly based on who you were. We're like, okay, fine, we'll consider that story. But let's look at how old that story is. 200 years, 1788, the settlers arrived Mm. and 200 and something, 250 years. But if you look at the deeper story of you being indigenous to this land, Mm. Gee, that goes back at least 60,000 years, perhaps longer. And if we look at like the origin of all life on Earth, I think it's 4 billion years. I might be wrong. I'm not sure of the number there. But then you look at time in a whole another dimension and you're like, wow, this is where a whole another miracle unfolded. And I'm still part of that miracle, whether I want to acknowledge it or not. Mm. That has brought me here. And when kids sort of say, oh, this 250-year blip sits in a 60,000-year ocean of genius, ocean Mm. of peace, ocean of wonder, of not only surviving, but thriving on the land, their whole identity, what it means to be indigenous for them shifts, what it means to be outside the margin shifts for the people that engage with us, especially the young people. Mm. And that's always the first video we play on one of our program days when kids walk into the room. Mm. That's always the first experience they have with us. And they're like, wow, all right. Mm. So I'm part of a much deeper time. And one of the way, and this is sort of like ties back also to the acknowledgement or the invocation we did at the beginning, because mm. some indigenous cultures around the world, and a lot of them have so many similarities, but they sort of look at time, not as this little bubble, but they look at deep time. What has been happening for 60,000, 100,000 much longer amount of time, and then how will that continue for the next 60,000, next 100,000 years? And some of the frameworks we use at AIM is like, 
what are the tools that we can leave behind which will still be relevant perhaps 60,000 years later mm. and it is not a tool in the in the normal like western way of thinking it is more a process it is more like to use a western analogy it's perhaps like CPR which is not owned by anyone which is not copyrighted by anyone mm. but it sort of gives people a certain framework to respond to someone who might be in distress so this is like how do you unlock the talent of young people outside the margins this is a certain framework that you can implement to unlock their potential mm. is there also an element of and this is something i experienced when i watched it for the first time is there an element rule of humility that's built in when you you're suddenly faced oh, yeah. with the idea that you're you're part of a 60,000 year timeline and you're like oh wow i got it okay I'm not the center mm. of the universe. I'm just a part mm. of something bigger. I wonder what you think about that. No, no, I agree with you. So there's like at least seven layers within that thing, within that idea of deep time. One of the layers I explained was like them appreciating the depth of what they're inheriting. All of us appreciating the depth of what we're inheriting, whether you're indigenous or not. Like I said in the beginning, you're part of life, which is really ancient. And for us to be sitting here in this moment, either listening to this conversation or you and I to be having this conversation, gee, life has done some remarkable twists and turns for this to occur in this particular moment. Mm. And that is an immense amount of gratitude. And then in India, one of the spiritual practices we do is sort of like go way, way, way back and ask like, okay, if I was not born in this condition or if I was born in a different condition, what chance did i have which is what i sort of did when i was younger and i suppose all of us do at some point what chance did i have and then you're like okay cool but i was born here let's just say that let's not hypothetically get into what if like mm. then the question is what did i do to like either inherit that or deserve that what did mm. i do to be born in that particular household in that particular culture with that particular framework of understanding in my life at some point you're going to say i did nothing and then it brings this deep humility into you and you're like huh mm. okay and then you start waking up to perhaps what is our role as humans within the natural ecosystem because we're not separate to nature as much as people like to think we are very much a part of nature and our role if anything which Tyson brings out beautifully in the book mm. is to be the custodial species yes. and it's not to become like owners or enjoyers or domineers of the natural world it's to sort of become custodians and play an integral part on lifting the whole ecosystem up along with us and along with what we're doing. So there's that idea of like being also proud but also humble mm. of what you are inheriting. And then it also involves like looking in different directions. One of the ways like indigenous cultures sort of look at is looking five ways and you look backwards and you look at the ancestors that have brought you to this particular moment and then you look forward and you look at all the posterity and all the future generations that are coming after you and then of course you naturally cannot wreck the planet as sometimes a lot of us are want to do because of the culture we've inherited because you know there's like 60,000 plus years of life potentially waiting to happen and our responsibility is to ensure the continuity of our lives if we are wise and if not we're going to lose so that's like looking backward looking forward looking downwards is where you ground yourself in the land which is what we did in the beginning which is what we continue to do as this conversation unfolds Looking upwards is us like trying to, like trees, stretch out to infinity, mm. stretch out towards the sky, stretch out like higher, 
as high as we can be, knowing still that there are limits within how much a tree can grow or how much a human can grow or how much we can all grow at some point and then there will be decline. But there is a reaching for the infinite, which is equally beautiful. Mm. And then the fifth direction is you look sideways and you pull people along with you. You pull mm. nature along. Like you become part of the culture and you become mentors to each other. Mm. So there's that five-way looking that's embedded in that deep time concept. Mm. Okay, so I'm going to come at this from a slightly different direction now. So during, you know, I've shared with you because we were texting and emailing each other prior to today's conversation, you know, that during my prep, I went down a number of rabbit holes, one of which was, <laughs> and, and, and was down those rabbit, I went down those rabbit holes for quite a while. But one of those rabbit holes was an exploration of liberation theology and historic liberation movements. And in some ways, I see AIM as having a liberation theology at its core. And I had to go down this rabbit hole parole because I needed help in explaining a short video that AIM commissioned, directed by an Oscar-winning filmmaker, Lauren Weitz. And the film is called Cogs, which our listeners can find at AIM's website. So why did AIM have this film made? And in what ways does AIM help its thousands of mentees understand the personal and communal liberation movement that they are part of. I agree with your assessment, Josh. It's an important framework to consider, especially with AIM's work and the idea of liberating ourselves. And Because we've all inherited a story. When young people are told they're not going to amount to much, that's a story they've inherited. Yeah. And for better or for worse, life is a story. It's a story we tell ourselves. It's a story other people tell us about ourselves and we choose to believe in or not. That dictates certain aspects of our life. And then certain, of course, external conditions, material conditions also dictate. But a lot of it has got to do with the way we tell stories. And that's why it's important to tell stories in a certain way. We have to be, again, accountable for the stories we tell each other. Because when... We go to a museum, for instance, and we look at like kings and queens and royalty on paintings. What's the story we're telling ourselves as a species? Is that mm. the right way to be? What is like when we make celebrities out of sports stars? Is that the right way to be? Like what are the stories we're telling each other? Mm. When we like like people's photos for how they look, what is the story we're telling each other as a species? Is this what is truly valuable? Or is like the deeds we do in the world, the good we can potentially spread in the world, so there is all of that like underlying story that guides everything we do at AIM. And when we commissioned that beautiful little two-and-a-half-minute video called mm-hmm. Cox, and yeah, the filmmaker is Laurent Witz because he's a French guy. But mm, okay. Yeah, he was... Yeah, yeah. And the idea was... We had lots of conversation. This was when AIM was going global. Mm. And we actually faced quite a bit of resistance when we went global, which... It's fascinating because we understand even within indigenous communities in Australia, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, there were some resistance saying, hey, you could be working with 10,000 more kids here. Why do you want to go overseas? Mm. And for us, we had found like a really beautiful solution that brought people of power face to face with people, potentially at the risk of being left behind. And on that bridge of mentoring founded upon imagination, Lots of exchanges occurred for both sides that benefited not only themselves, but the wider community and life at large. And we're like, if this thing can work in this context, surely it can work in other contexts. And it becomes almost an obligation to use an extreme analogy. So like discovering a cure for cancer and saying, I'm only going to give it to this particular group of people. And we're like, no, like inequity is a global problem. 
kids are not engaging in school for better whatever reason that's a global phenomena and it is almost a moral obligation on our part coming back to being mentors in life mm. is to share the knowledge we've accumulated and at some point in aims journey we're like actually this thing is willing or ready to be shared mm. and we will do what a custodial species should do is mm. to share and that's why the film was commissioned and it's a beautiful way of like freeing ourselves because we don't think human beings are bad like you will find that in every interaction you have with me or with aim or broadly josh like we have this underlying belief and there's a beautiful book called humankind written by rutger bregman and he sort of dismantles the idea cuz there were two conflicting schools of thought one of them said underneath every person is like a criminal waiting to bounce out under the thin veneer of civilization mm. and on the other side is like no human beings are fundamentally decent and well perhaps we go wrong in certain ways and we sort of believe more in like the kindness of humans that we're essentially good but the systems we've inherited maybe are not so good maybe weren't designed with the best intentions or maybe were designed with good intentions but got lost in the process and so for us it's saying hey systems we inherited perhaps don't work for everyone we know that for a fact and it's our job to dismantle some of the systems and you have to first do it to yourself before you do it. it's like that plain thing where they always say put your mask on before helping other people like you've got to free yeah. yourself in order to be able to free anyone else if at all that's possible wow wow that's beautiful and before we go to our second break pearl this is a a great segue into education because our audience for the what school could be podcast is mostly educators and education leaders so you delivered a talk at the global forum for education and learning in dubai in 2019 and in that talk and forgive me this is a bit of a preamble here but that talk begins and ends with an aim video production and you talked about education because obviously it was an education setting and you said education does not work for everyone teaching and learning needs to change imagination needs to be at the forefront of learning teachers need to be guides and coaches not givers of knowledge and you said education needs to be transformed from the inside out and we need to stop seeing youth as problems that need to be fixed but rather the source of solutions so the first time i saw this talk i've watched it twice i was a bit surprised to hear this because it seemed like aim started as a way to mentor kids struggling through established standardized education systems and to help them you know graduate and get to the other side and open up possibilities so when and how did transforming education itself become part of the conversation at aim and how does aim now see its role in the reimagination of education in this 21st century and i realized yeah. that's a big question <laughs> that's a huge huge question josh and i love this question it's brilliant and i'm so glad you listened to that talk and you understood that at some point but if i'm honest if we read the mentor with jack road as the founder of aim like pretty early on in aim years sort of documents the idea that this is about changing the world although we start small we start here in this particular community because sometimes people have these big ideas oh sure education systems need to be transformed yeah. and sometimes they say let's shut down every school like tomorrow and although we would like 
sometimes to believe in that kind of narrative, like it's not healthy. Yeah. It's not useful if you look at like extreme cases, like what happened in Sri Lanka when they said, from tomorrow, no more fertilizers. Or if you look at India when they said, from tomorrow, no more this rupee or this currency is going to work. Yeah. And you have to build like a process to get there. You have to actually transform the system step by step. And it is deep, dirty, like unrewarding work at times. You have to really get into the trenches and move the system one lever at a time. And you have to find initially, what's the one lever? If I get to pull one lever, mm. what is that one lever I would pull within that system? So although we had that big mandate from day one, we had to like prove in a way our worth. We had to prove that this work is working. We had to build like practical action methods for people to be trained as mentors and then go sit with kids. And then we realized it is actually a system-wide conversation. The more AIM expanded around Australia, and especially when we started having a conversation around AIM being a global entity, that's when we were like, okay, like what we're really trying to shift here mm. is not how like, we're not trying to build a beautiful AIM bubble. Because that can work for kids when they come to the same bubble. And then what happens when they go outside? Schools are still the same. Yes. And if you look, look at photographs, I'm sure other people have spoken about this on your podcast. But if you look at photographs of a school in 1850 versus 1900 versus 1950 versus 2000, yeah. remarkably the same photograph appears. Like what? Yeah. Wait, the whole world has changed. The way we train skills have changed. Everything has changed. But the classroom is the same. There's this person up the front. There's still kids at the back getting bored or some kids engaging. It's the same narrative being repeated for so long. And we're like, actually, it doesn't work. Let's acknowledge that it doesn't work. And then let's acknowledge, especially in today's day and age, where technology is pushing things to the limit. You and I are having this conversation in two different countries and we can do it yeah. through the means of a device. Like Kids can look up things on Google and YouTube much easier than a teacher can try explaining to them. And then the teacher, if they are wise, should ask themselves, okay, then what is my role here? What is my position here? Hmm. And if they go deep enough, they're going to say, actually, my role is to sit with the kids, to cross that line that divides teacher and student, hmm. and then to collectively wonder at the complexity of the world outside, help kids make sense of the complexity and find a place within that complexity and have their imagination unlocked, have their genius unlocked, have their freedom to be able to be whoever they want to be, to create solutions. And again, coming back to what you said, to not see kids as a problem, but rather as the solution. And that is where, like, when we asked ourselves, what is one lever we would pull? And this was everything at AIM comes from the young people we work with. All the TV programming, you'll see it's young people leading, the university we built young people leading. Even the word imagination, although it's always been part of AIM's lexicon, sort of retook center stage in a way when a bunch of young people in Australia got together at this festival in the Northern Territory, which is sacred Aboriginal land, called Garma, and this festival is akin to like the Davos of Australia, the Prime Minister usually goes, the Finance Minister goes, and we have been running the Youth Forum, we've been facilitating the Youth Forum for the last three years, and mm. 2019, on the 5th of August, young people in Australia came together and said, and they launched what is called the Imagination Declaration for the World, which called on the Prime Minister and Education Ministers, initially in Australia and then worldwide, to look at imagination being a core principle within educational settings because it helps us sort of navigate the gap between margins and the mainstream and it helps us speak to like different demographics of kids it helps like teachers sort of like let go of this 
egotistical idea in some way that I have to know everything and become humble and say, actually, I don't know a lot of things and let's find out together, mm-hmm. which a lot of teachers are doing at the moment. So I'll, I'll call out wonderful work that's happening in education already. But then I'll also say like predominantly, and it's not teachers being bad, the systems that they have been given that you have to get kids to go through a certain grade, do certain things, which we've done as well, which you called out beautifully. And then at some point we said, actually, AIM's not even fulfilling its purpose. If all we're doing is getting them to complete their school and go on to uni and so on Mm. and so forth. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of deeper transformation work that occurs, even them doing that whilst being proud of their identity. But we're like, let's go even deeper. Let's challenge ourselves. And that's when AIM became really complex. Now we have our TV platform, our university. We're building this new digital nation called Imagination. And all of that seems like a bit too much. Or we have our hoodies, which is a storytelling mechanism. But if you really need to change the system, you've got to build a legitimate system that has all different aspects. Mm. It's like I'd say initially AIM was like a laser light or a lighthouse, sort of focusing like a focused light between, okay, this is how we connect our groups. This is all the change that occurs. And then at some point, we're like, actually, we've got to light up the whole world. So we have to become more of a baseball stadium, let's say. Mm-hmm. We have to have a strong light here, a strong light there, a dim light there. And then the whole stadium gets lit up. Wow. Wow. And that is a perfect place because I'm sure our listeners' brains are now going off like a fireworks show. A perfect place <laughs> for us to take a break. So, hey everybody, stay with us. We'll be back in a flash with more questions for Parole. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at UNR. ULR.com. Mahalo. Everyone, we are back with Parul Punjabi Jagdish, whose mission in life, inspired by Mandela, Gandhi, and Malala, is to trust life fully, live fearlessly, and serve all beings around me, human and non human. So, Parul, in this last section, of our conversation. Let's imagine we're in a hot air balloon up there at 10,000 feet. Love it, I'm floating with you. <laughs> there we go. And we're having a couple of sparkling waters and we're at an altitude that affords us a wide view of things. So these last few questions I found actually way up there in the clouds where I allowed myself to go. Mm. So. I'm mindful that our listeners are mostly educators and education leaders. So I want to talk about the concept of investing in young people. And I've heard you talk about how investment in our youth results in magic. So what do you mean? And what are specific examples that will help our listeners grasp what you mean by investment? And this might be an opportunity 
to elaborate on Hoodie Economics or AIM TV or other media, Imagination University, or even Failure Time, all of which have to be funded somehow, but all of which are investments that hopefully will lead to magic. And that's a big word in our world, magic. And we were just remarking in the side break how like education is all theatrical. Yeah. We at one point have called the days I describe when you walk onto a university campus as the theater of education. We call them our pop-up imagination factories now because again, we go back to the word imagination Mm -hmm. as the one key lever within education, which the young people themselves asked us. So why do we need to invest in young people? Because we are almost out of the picture at different stages and we know that they are the picture. They're not even the future. They are the present. And we know like the problems that we're facing today Mm. in education, in the world at large, will not be solved with the same level of thinking, which is what Einstein said, that got us here in the first place. We need new ways of thinking. And what best method to unlock new ways of thinking than to go to the people who haven't as yet inherited or inbuilt or accepted everything that the world has given them, whilst their brains are still malleable, who best to go than to young people and say, hey, these are some of the problems that the world is facing now. Mm. And we really need to like work with you to unlock what solutions can be. And there is room for like wisdom and expertise and people who spend their whole life studying science or art or the science of hot air balloons. There's space for that mm. to exist and for them to shepherd the young people and allow like unlikely solutions to emerge with young people. One of my favorite imagination activities is to go hang out with a a little human like a three-year-old or a four-year-old and the amount of ideas and insights you get (laughs) just from hanging for an hour is phenomenal and that's an imagination masterclass you're not going to get a better masterclass on imagination than just sitting with a young person for an hour and so that's kind of what we mean why we need to invest in young people to unlock the magic that's so necessary in the world today why education has to be a bit more fun and meaningful for the young people Mm. instead of it being rote learning or ideas that they have to memorize in order to get through school, in order to get to university and then find a job, which is all well and good. It's functional, but it's not essential. It's not the reason why education was built in the first place, at least not the original principles of it. It's not like why we're here on earth as humans. That's not our role. Our role is much bigger, much deeper. And Mm. this is why we've invested in all these tools with a name, Mm -hmm. whether it's Imagination TV, where we bring world-class mentors straight into kids' classrooms and homes, and they can stream it themselves. And we've had, say, the Mandela family or the Prime Minister of Australia, or lots of amazing people jump on the show. Mm. And young people lead the programming. They ask the questions, what you're doing to me, they become facilitators and they take it in whatever direction they want to take it. And it's really beautiful to see young people in a way reverse mentoring these so-called mentors and a lot of magic unlocks in that. This is why we have puppets in our world. This is why Professor Hope is important. Professor Einstein is important because then it gets the conversation out of race and out of differences and sort of everyone's mind just goes, wait, what? It's like a pink furry thing here telling me something that is kind of like blowing my mind right now. And that is the transformation in education. And that's where a lot of learning occurs through surprise or through comedy or through like a sense of wonder. 
Mm. And the more we bring that sense of wonder into the classroom, and there's so many practices like failure time is a beautiful way of bringing wonder into kids' lives. And failure time, for those of you who may not know, is Ames version of a marketplace or an acropolis of learning. Mm. And we set up these stations and we invite, within the school setting, we invite the whole community in. We invite parents of kids, we invite indigenous elders or different elders within the community. We invite like people in the police force, the local youth service providers, the local whoever, employers that might have a, a role to play in shaping the kids' lives to come into the room and we say, hey, take off your police hat, Take off your whatever hat you're wearing, your CEO hat, mm. and for the next hour, you're a mentor. And your job is to teach the kids, and you can also learn something if you don't know it. It doesn't matter. You don't have to be an expert. Teach the kids something that they do not know, and you, perhaps you do not know, and your objective is to fail. It's not mm. to succeed. Don't try to get it right. Try to get it wrong. And when you start with that framework, it's like, oh, cool, my job <laughs> is to fail. Sure, I can write... I can write a speech as the first Aboriginal Prime Minister of Australia because I'm going to fail at it. And then suddenly the most remarkable, when you let go of this idea, and especially the young people we work with who've been forced outside the margin, there's shame, there's the idea of like, oh, I'm going to fail, so I'm not going to try it even. And once you have the lens of failure time, the objective is to fail, and the kids can self-select their learning journey. They're, they're like, oh, actually, I don't feel like doing art at the moment. I want to do a more high-intensity activity. So I'm going to go do that traditional dance form, or I'm going to go learn hip-hop over there, or I'm going to go paint my nails over there. That's what I want to do at the moment. And so kids pick their own adventure, learning journey, and they might spend 10 minutes there and decide to wander, or they might spend the whole hour there. Mm. And again, the objective is always whoever's holding those stations to say, hey, we're here to fail. Let's fail together. Mm. And before long, and the best, the most beautiful gift I receive on AIM days is when one of the young people tells us as mentors, hey, you don't know how it's done. Let me show you how it's done. And boom, <laughs> learning has happened. Right. Magic has been unlocked. Right, right. And also back to what we were talking about earlier about liberation. You've been liberated to a certain extent, or at least you've begun the liberation mm. process from the stories that have put you in boxes, right? Totally, totally. And you can imagine a different reality. And even in just those brief moments of like, oh, entering a science fiction world or entering a different universe, yeah. then you know that, okay, it is a story we've inherited. It's someone's imagination, like Adrian Marie Brown beautifully put it. It's someone else's dream I'm living into. Yeah. And I can create my own version of reality to some extent. And then the more they feel empowered to do that, the more the world starts becoming more inclusive, better, fairer. And this is why really we need to invest in young people. It is to unlock the magic, but it is actually to build a world where all of us can feel belonged and valued and welcomed. And, and we sort of acknowledge we're part of the whole fabric of life and not separate to life and not separate to nature, mm. locked up in our buildings. Wow. Okay, so as we come down to the end here, I have a couple more questions for you. So, and th this one might be the biggest one because, <laughs> because it's really a synthesis of weeks of work on my part to understand. And I will, I will confess to our listeners here, Parul, that this was challenging for me because it took me outside of my box of talking to imaginative, creative, and innovative educators. And it took me to places that I've never been before. And for that, I'm very grateful to you for this opportunity to go through that process and so in the synthesis of trying to come down to, you know, the end here, I came to this particular point. So as we, as we come to this moment, 
let's channel Tyson, Yunkaporta, and engage in a thought experiment. So let's imagine 50 or 75 years from now, or maybe 10, but maybe we stretch it out longer, and AIM mentoring turns off the lights and closes up shop because it feels it no longer needs to exist. So what does the world need to look like at that moment that such a huge decision would be made? Yeah, that's huge. It's profound. It's to contemplate the death of the organization yeah. or the death of a being. Because organizations, if we truly are honest about them, schools, whatever, are alive. Like if you want to look at life that way, if you want to give everything life, sure, everything is life and everything should mimic the life. So it is a huge decision. And also it's not a huge decision. It's a natural decision. It's mm. the only decision that makes sense. In a world where everyone says more, 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 unlimited growth, unlimited scale, unlimited, we know that, okay, the planet's resources are limited. Although we operate from a principle of abundance, we know that at some point it's better. And we were speaking about this to an investor here and they came back to us saying, you know what, I've never heard this before and we should probably be shutting some of our funds and some of our organizations in like three years' time and five years' time. Mm. Like it's a beautiful concept and we leave the soil richer in the process. Mm. We become compost for other more beautiful ideas to emerge. So there's two sides to my response, I would say. On the first side or the first part is that it is natural. Philosophically, existentially, everything that is born has to die. This conversation that started has to end. You and I, if we consider ourselves as limited human beings, we are born, we have a death date at some point, although we're not aware of it. Everything follows that cycle. Trees, mm. mushrooms, humans. Why not organizations? Why not the structures we build? At some point, they self-destruct. Mm. But if you build that idea of intentional death, and it's not like an accidental, oh, we bungled things up and we didn't do things well, and so this thing has to go. It's like, hey, we do things so well, and having that framework of a 10-year period, we're working with 10, we're not pushing it to 40 or 50, is like having that definite end date mm. gives you the mandate to do the maximum good you can in that particular period. One of like personally, I'll make it also personal, is that one of the most transformational course or work I've done in my life has been this book from Stephen Levine. And I've done it as a group in a group setting back in Australia, is contemplating your own death through like a year to live as a framework mm. and you consider that you're given a prognosis of one year to live mm. and if we're doing a thought experiment do it yourself joshi and do it everyone else who's listening in the world say if from today until next year if i just have this one year to live how am i going to live this year of my life mm. what does it mean and we caught up once a month and we did practices together and it, some of it includes practical things like, have you considered making a will or your critical care directive? Do you want to be buried or do you want to be cremated? Or right. have you had a conversation? And a lot of other aspects were more like spiritual. Have you let go of like any hurt feelings or have you forgiven the people that you need to have forgiveness for? Or have you had a closure on some of the things that might be festering in your world? Have you done your life's work so that you can actually say goodbye peacefully? And for us, that's like the philosophical part. And then the practical part becomes, if we only have 10 years to do what we are set about 
to do, then how do we nurture perhaps like mm. 10 other versions of AIM or 100 other versions or 1,000 that can become like multiplier effects in their own ways, can become these imagination fuel networks that shift the system much bigger than we potentially can. Mm. And we're now like at a stage in AIM's journey where we're not necessarily doing the work. The reason why we built our university is to say, hey, we've done all this work for 18 years. Now it's our job in a way, like as we turn adults in normal human life cycle term, to become in sort of organizational life cycle, which we look almost at a 30-year period. And that's through some deep thinking to say, now it's time for AIM to become like an elder and adult and pass on knowledge. And our university is effectively training anyone, anywhere, school students, uni students, teachers, executives, and citizens to work in unlikely ways to pick up our toolkit and implement it in their own settings, into their own educational settings or organizational mm. settings or community settings and build a fairer world. So we've become a catalyst for other people to do the work. Mm. And now we're pushing really hard on our organizational partners because we partner with a lot of like big organizations, your Salesforces or Bloomberg's or Accenture's or Citibank's or whoever's of the world. Mm. And we're pushing on them to take on the mentoring mantle. So it's not on us. And we can maybe work with 10,000, 50,000, 100,000 kids. But if you look at the employee base of our partners, it's in the millions. And imagine if they could commit like an hour a week or mm. 10 hours in a year to go and sit with the kids outside the margins and spend time, then there is an unlikely bridge. And then all these organizations that come to us and say, hey, can you help us find a diverse candidate for this role? Well, like you build your own talent pipeline. You go and do the work, sit in schools, Mm. work on projects together, collectively unlock the kids' imagination, your own imagination, and your staff will be so grateful to get out of the office and go sit with a kid in a school setting. Mm. And you will find your staff richer for the experience. Kids will gain a lot. The whole world will be a better place. So we're pushing that through our corporate and wider community partner base to take on. And that project is called JOY. It's an acronym for just organizations mm. and you, but it's also the feeling of joy that we want to invoke in the world for everyone to do this work. And we don't struggle, even if it's a 10-year journey that we go on from here till like the death date of AIM, we want it to be a joyful journey. We want people that work with us or that are in our circles to find joy in the, and in some ways to do it easy because mm. you can make life a struggle. And it's true, life is can be a struggle, but it can also be a joyful journey. And this is what we're trying to sort of embody and inspire and imagine if like 10 other young people rise up like Jack did when he founded AIM or mm. all these other people have done around the world, then what can happen with the world? And imagine if all our corporates and community partners build mentoring as a core part of their framework, build imagination into their strategies, build like networking done differently as their fundamental principle of connecting with people and their communities. What more can we do? And that would be the best way. So I think when we have that end date, mm. perhaps we create more good than we could have in like 40 years, 50 years, 100 years. Mm. And to use like a real life example as like a closing thought on this question, and this comes from my niece perhaps, but also is part of like ancient in Indian wisdom is the stars are shining even now. I'm looking outside at a sunny sky. The stars are there, yes. but you and I can't see it because the backdrop isn't dark enough. Because you haven't contemplated the empty space, the otherness. You haven't contemplated death, which is a natural counterpoint to life. And it's not an end, but as soon as the sky becomes dark, suddenly the stars shine through and you're like, oh, cool, you were there the whole time. I just couldn't see you. 
Mm. And it's the same. Like life is here all the time. We miss it so much because we don't consider that things will come to an end. Mm. Wow. Wow. Take a breath in this moment. <laughs> you, you, you've um, you've responded in a way that was actually surprising because, you know, when you think this question through, it's almost as if it's hopeless because the world can never be as perfect as it needs to be for aim to go away. But what you've said is the world doesn't need to be perfect. What needs to happen is that these neural networks of people communicating with each other and building the better world need to be more expansive, and that is the work that you're doing. Exactly. That's what allows you, yeah, to close your doors and say, we move on to the next thing, right? Because there mm. is always a next thing after that. So that's great. So for the purposes, and here we are at the end, Pruel, for the purposes of this podcast <laughs> and this conversation, I'm going to temporarily dub you Professor Hope at the Imagination <laughs> University and ask you, what is the hopeful news of this month, July 2022? And the pressure is on, my friend. This is how our conversation <laughs> will come to its close. So please, give us some hopeful news from mm. Professor Hope in this moment. I can give you so many reasons to be hopeful. I can give you so many hopeful news in the world at the moment. Like, wherever you look, although media might not portray it, People are rising up. People are acknowledging that there are systems now working. Everywhere I look, I'm finding when I was in Hawaii, when I was in Vegas, when I'm here in New York, everywhere I look, people are actually standing up and doing the work. Mm. That makes me really hopeful when I see people actually doing the work. Everywhere around the world, in India, in Africa, in Europe, in Australia, in America, in South America, everywhere in the world, especially young people are rising up at different stages, which gives me hope because we know they are the present and the future. And if enough young people are molded, given the frameworks, then, gee, we have a shot at really shifting the way things work. And the other thing that really makes me hopeful is to contemplate things like AIM's death for us internally is to be like, okay, and going back to the previous question, it, it is like, in a way, like when a person becomes older, then like, the reason sometimes why people want children is to sort of like have someone else take the baton and run with it and create more beautiful things in the world and you can lie on your deathbed and be comfortable or not. Like, And it doesn't have to be children. It could be a body of art. It could be a body of work you've done. It could be a series of things that you leave behind and you know your work is done. Mm. And that's a rewarding experience when you know you've left the world a better place than you've come in. So for me, that gives me a lot of hope and and then just the simple mere fact of existence, Joshi, because <laughs> we might not have existed. What amazing collision of factors have occurred, like what stardust crashed into what asteroid, into what planet <laughs> for life to emerge in the current format. Yeah. For you and I to sit here, have this conversation or for whoever is listening to put earphones or just listen, whatever, however way. For all these people to come together, for someone to have built this technology, for us to meet somehow bizarrely in Hawaii through a chance meeting I had with someone else who's Robert and just all these factors that make life so rich, all the networks, all the people that bring me joy mm. and just the miracle of mere existence. And, and we sometimes tend to forget it because I love science, but I also have like a bone to pick with science. And that is <laughs> if you make it, like if you break it down and say, 
you like this seed, if you put it under the ground and pour it water and give it sunshine and blah, 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 the soil is in the right conditions, then a tree will emerge. And that somehow explains the miracle away. And if I was to give you this little can of sparkling water that's in my hand and I said to you, Josh, go plant this thing underground, pour water, give it sunshine, <laughs> it'll become a gigantic can. <laughs> Won't you find it miraculous? Won't you be like, holy shoot, how did that happen? <laughs> what is going on here? And that's as much the miracle we're faced with when we're given a little seed that contains within it not just one gigantic tree, but that tree will have thousands of fruits and they will all have millions of seeds eventually and those seeds will go back and some of them will germinate and become trees in their own right. So that little seed perhaps contains thousands, millions of trees. Yeah. And to think all of life exists in that little piece of thing that is a seed mm. is so miraculous. And circling back on the education circle, I'd say that's our young people today. It's that little seed with unlimited potential mm. and our job as educators is to nurture, is to sort of allow them to flourish and create the conditions. You cannot really teach. All you can do is create conditions for young people to be fulfilled and really out there doing the work that we want all of us to be doing. Mm. Hopeful news, Professor Hope. We thank you for that <laughs> very much. So, Parul Punjabi Jagdish, thank you for this time today. We at What School Could Be Wish you and your awesome and giant extended AIM family light and life. And please stay safe and we will be in touch. Right back at you, Josh, and your whole community connected to this podcast and the work you do in the world. And I will express my gratitude, like deep, deep gratitude to you. I don't think anyone has done so much research on AIM except like universities that have actually studied AIM for six years or so. So like I've been blown away by the level of research you've put into this, the depth of questions you've asked, the number of texts we've had, because AIM is an endless universe in some ways, especially philosophically. The deeper you go, the more there is to explore. And you've gone really, really deep, which I've admired and appreciated. And it's been such a joyful journey meeting you and going on this journey together and although I don't do podcasts as a general rule, this was mm. one of the best things I've done. So thank you. Thank you, Parul. The word joy, that's the operative word. And also kindness as well. And mm. so the process of going through and preparing for today was very much a joyful process. And I love the fact that kindness is woven all through everything that AIM is all about and everything related to AIM and your life and all that. So thank you. And we'll talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. My editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurahara. Our theme music and musical interludes come from the vast catalog of music created by my friend of 40 years, the remarkable pianist Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and over 2,000 cities to date. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. This series is underwritten by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed, and author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be. 
please join the What School Could Be global online community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org. Follow the show on Twitter at WSCB Podcast. Friends, these are uncertain and challenging times. The headlines, especially around education, can be relentlessly negative. Please bring kindness, compassion, innovation, creativity, and imagination into the world. We need a surplus of all of these right now. Until the next episode, ahui ho, and take care. <laughs>